Glory to Jesus Christ. Uh, my name is Father Andrew Somerson. On behalf of the Lumen Christi Institute, I would like to welcome you tonight to our next installment of Eastern Catholic Theology in Action. Uh, the Lumen Christi Institute is an dedicated to providing the best of the Catholic intellectual tradition, uh, both uh, on the campus of University of Chicago and here with you tonight uh, on the evening. This is our next installment of our series, Eastern Catholic Theology in Action. Uh, we'd like to thank uh, our sponsors who have helped co-present this evening tonight, the Godbearer Institute, the Beatrice Institute, the Calvert House Catholic Center, the Catholic Theological Union, the Institute for Faith and Culture, God With Us Online, the Harvard Catholic Forum, the Metropolitan Andrei Sheptitsky Institute of Eastern Christian Studies, the Nova Forum, the Orthodox Christian Studies Center at Fordham University, and the St. Benedict Institute, the St. Paul Catholic Center, St. Stephen Byzantine Catholic Church, and the Tabor Life Institute. To give you a little context of tonight's presentation, the great movements of immigration in the last century, some running toward work while others running from war, tyranny, and hardship, transformed the Catholic landscape across the globe. It challenged the homogeneously Catholic countries in Europe and dedicated Roman Catholic missions in the New World with its diverse ritual faith traditions of the Christian East. This new reality has blossomed in the new world to say the least. 100 years ago, in the United States, we had one exarchate for Eastern Catholics, while today there are 17 eparchies representing nine ritual churches in the United States. Tonight's speaker comes from Canada, and I mentioned that 100 years ago, one exarchate existed for the Ukrainian Catholics in the United States, and that has now grown to 10 at Parkies, representing six ritual traditions. This new dynamic of Eastern Catholics living in predominantly Western Catholic countries has presented opportunities and challenges to us. And here to speak about that tonight is Father Alexander Leschuk. Father Alexander Leschuk holds a canonical doctorate and a civil doctorate from the University of St. Paul in Ottawa in canon law. He is the director of the Metropolitan Andrei Sheptitsky Institute for Eastern Christian Studies at the University of St. Michael's College and the University of Toronto. He is also judicial vicar of the Toronto Regional Tribunal, moderated by His Eminence Thomas Cardinal Collins and parochial vicar at St. Nicholas Ukrainian Catholic Church in Toronto. He's a member of the North American Orthodox Catholic Theological Consultation. His research interests are ecclesiology, history of canon law, penal law, and sacramental law. He's here to speak to us tonight about Eastern churches that are in Latin territories. What's the notion of Catholicity that can best accommodate this view? And even to talk a little bit about the notion of diaspora, that is Eastern Catholics living outside of their canonical and traditional homelands. I remind our participants that a Q&A session will follow Father Leschuk's talk. Questions can be submitted anytime by clicking below on the Q&A button at the bottom of your Zoom screen. I now invite Father Alexander to unmute himself and display his screen. Without further ado, my good friend and colleague, Father Alexander. Good evening, glory to Jesus Christ.
I am glad to be here this evening to talk about um, the experience of many of us Eastern Catholics living in the so-called diaspora outside of what we call the canonical territory or the traditional territory. Um, and I come at, at this as a Ukrainian Catholic priest. Uh, I live in downtown Toronto, which is um, you know, probably one of the most diverse cities that exists on God's good planet Earth. Um, you know, we have in, in the Latin Archdiocese itself, you know, Mass is celebrated in 24 languages, plus, um, you know, almost every Eastern Catholic Church is represented in this city. Um, so we have a great experience of, of coexisting, um, and we try our best to get along. And the topic I've been asked to speak about today is Eastern Churches, Latin Territories, Ecclesial Catholicity, and the notion of diaspora. And I'm going to share my screen so that you can see my PowerPoint. Uh, maybe just to mention too um, that you know we're talking about big topics here. Okay, you know what is the church? What is the missionary function of the church? Uh, how do Eastern Christians fit into this? Um, you know these are big questions, and in a 35 to 45 minute talk, we are going to be you know kind of skimming the surface of this this conversation right um, and I would like to see it I probably hear an ambulance driving by I live downtown um, I see this really as the beginning of a conversation much of it which will continue in the Q&A period um, but to try and address some of these complex topics um, but I apologize in advance for the the necessary superficiality of that, right? You know that we we really can't get into all the detail, the real nitty gritty. Um, I mean, some of these topics you could easily write a doctorate on. Uh, this picture you see in the background here um, is one from uh, my own collection uh, that I stumbled on um, in uh, in the in some archive work, and this is a picture of uh, Cardinal Yosef Slipe, Patriarch Yosef the Confessor, uh, who was the head of the Ukrainian Catholic Church. Um, and spent many years in Soviet exile, um, first in, in Siberia, but then uh, he was cast out from the Soviet Union. Um, and this is his presence at the Second Vatican Council. Um, and uh, of course, the Eastern Catholic bishops had a great presence there, and the Second Vatican Council really spoke to the Eastern Catholic churches, really affirmed their dignity, affirmed their being truly churches. Um, and it really was through witness of hierarchs such as, such as uh, Cardinal Slipe um, that, that participated in that. Okay. So today, we're, you know, what are the Eastern Catholic churches? In a talk like this, you know, we all have different backgrounds, so this will be review for some people. Um, but this whole notion of, you know, who are the Eastern Catholic churches? You know, why do we maybe use the term church instead of the term right? And what is this whole thing, a church sui juris? You know, we might hear this phrase sometimes. In canon law, we refer to churches sui juris. Um, and then we'll move on to this whole concept of canonical territory. Um, and how does this impact the mission to evangelize? You know, we know in the gospel that we are told to go out to baptize and make disciples. And that's a calling that impacts all of us as Christians, and how does that relate to the churches of the Christian East? So who are the Eastern Catholic churches? Who are these people? Um, the basic schema that we have, you know, if we talk about the hierarchical constitution of the Catholic Church, the Catholic Church is a communion of different churches. 
we have the Latin church, of course, is the largest of these churches. And the Latin church is head, headed by the Bishop of Rome, who has that special function as, of course, primate of the universal church, but also as head of the church in the West. And then when we talk about the Eastern Catholic churches, we can group them into certain families that describe their sort of self-governing ability. How, how able are they to govern themselves? And these basic structures would be the patriarchal churches, the major archiepiscopal churches, and metropolitan churches. There are then some smaller churches, Suriuris, who I've not listed here, um, who don't belong to a, uh, a body of bishops, we could say. Um, so the patriarchal churches are headed by a patriarch. Um, and that's a word we don't like in our world today, right? Patriarchy, we don't like that word. Um, but you know, in an ecclesial sense, we just mean you know, you know, the, the patriarch, the, um, the pater and the archi, the, the rule of a father, right? Uh, and if we read the Second Vatican Council's decree um, on, on churches, on Lumen Gentium, on the hierarchical constitution of the church, we read about the development of certain sees. There were certain sees, S-E-E, uh, certain dioceses or eparchies, as we'd call them in the East, that had a preeminence, and they began to have influence around those churches surrounding them. And the most preeminent of these were the patriarchal churches, those headed by a patriarch. We have uh, the Chaldean Catholic Church, the Maronite Catholic Church, the Armenian Catholic Church, the Coptic Catholic Church, the Syrian Catholic Church, and the Melkite Catholic Church. And the patriarchal churches are the most self-governing. They rule themselves internally. They're able to elect their head, their pater, their patriarch. And then that patriarch exchanges the uh, letters of communion with the Bishop of Rome, the ancient practice of exchanging letters of communion. The major archiepiscopal churches are likened to patriarchates in almost every way, but there are a few um, restrictions on their self-governing ability. And this is most especially in the election of their head in that the major archiepiscopal churches have to uh, have their election confirmed by the Bishop of Rome. So a big question in this whole conversation that we'll see again is what is the role of the Bishop of Rome in his universal primacy, right? Um, and sometimes it's difficult for us to distinguish between the Bishop of Rome acting as head of the Church of the West, we would maybe traditionally have called that Patriarch of the West, they don't use that title anymore, but maybe that's a traditional term we could use to describe that function. Um, and the Bishop of Rome acting as head of the Universal Church, you know, when are those functions happening? And one of his important functions uh, as head of the Universal Church is what we call the Supreme Judge of Interchurch Relations, that basically Sometimes there are conflicts between different churches and the Bishop of Rome has that judging ability. And all of these structures and even all of these notions of canonical territory and everything that follow are from that idea of the Bishop of Rome being the arbitrator between the churches. So the major archiepiscopal churches, the Ukrainian Catholic Church, which is currently the largest Eastern Catholic Church, the Syro Malabar, Syro Malankara, and the Romanian uh, Catholic Church. And then we have metropolitan churches. Metropolitan churches don't have synods of bishops, they have a council of hierarchs. So they, they do still have jurisdiction to govern themselves internally, 
but not as much freedom as a patriarchal church or a major archiepiscopal church. And those are the Ruthenian Catholic Church, uh, sometimes we call it the Byzantine Catholic Church, the Ethiopian Church, Eritrean, the Slovak, and the Hungarian. There are then a number of uh, churches who might have a single bishop, who might have no bishop even, um, and uh, are, we usually call them other Eastern Catholic churches or other churches through Eurus. So they're recognized as having a uniqueness about them, um, but they don't belong due to their size uh, to a wider uh, body of churches. And as a result, they um, you know, have less self-governing freedom, um, you know, just not having that synodal structure that is proper to the Christian East. So what kind of numbers are we talking about here? You know, uh, unfortunately, um, this is the most recent from Father Robertson, who many of you may have heard of. He um, worked for the Conference of Bishops in the United States for many years and would publish these great uh, statistics about the Eastern Catholic churches. Um, but to get a sense of how many Eastern Catholics are we talking about? So the Ukrainians are one quarter of all the Eastern Catholics in the world. Um, the Syro-Malabars are not far behind them, right? So those are four million. Some of these churches are quite small, right? So one of these other Eastern Catholic churches we'd be talking about would be the Eastern Catholic Church of the Byzantines in the former Yugoslavia, who number 54,000. So we're talking about quite a small community here. Um, or the, the Eastern Catholic Church in Greece, sometimes we call it the Hellenic Catholic, the Hellenic Greek Catholic Church, just so we don't say the Greek Greek Catholic Church, um, which is only 6,000 in number. So a, a small community, but still one that we recognize as having a unique tradition um, that makes them a church surreuris. Now, what about in the United States? What are these numbers like? maybe you are aware, maybe you're not aware that the largest Eastern Catholic Church in the United States are the Chaldean Catholics. Um, and, you know, these are three-year-old numbers, and we all know what's happening in the Middle East, and I'm sure that number is a lot larger than, than where it was in 2017. Um, some of our churches are growing, some of our churches are shrinking. Um, and we can also notice maybe that our um, number of bishops does not always line up with the size of our church. You know, for example, the Chaldeans are the largest and do not have the most bishops. Um, some of our churches that, that are more established are dealing with the same challenges of secularization and evangelization that we're talking about this evening, but the, the, those same challenges that the church as a whole is dealing with. So the Catholic Church is a communion of self-governing churches. We call that uh, suriuris. Um, and we don't really talk about, in history, sometimes we refer to the notion of right, or maybe even sometimes the notion of nation. Um, but we don't really use that language anymore. We use the, the term of a church for these churches. And um, if we look at the ecclesiology in the second millennium of the Catholic Church, it's really characterized by the special role of the Bishop of Rome. Uh, this ecclesiological model displaced an earlier model of communion. Um, we've kind of reclaimed that since the Second Vatican Council, but there was a long time in between there where we really looked at the Bishop of Rome as being sort of the definition of, you know, what it means to be Catholic. And not that that's not today the case, right? But we don't maybe establish our ecclesiology in that kind of language. Um, unity in the church during this period was understood not really simply unity of faith, but also unity of discipline. Any non-Latin Catholics 
were understood only in terms of their ritual identity, not in expressions of theology or disciplinary uniqueness. And the various rites of the Catholic Church were not considered equal and special prestige was assigned to the Latin rite in virtue of a concept we called the prestige of the Latin rite, the prestancia ritus latini. This idea that whenever there was a difference between something Eastern and something Latin, you know, Latin trumped all. And that was really the understanding of the church in the West for, for many centuries. Um, and this is an ecclesiology that reflected the Catholic church as a single church with different liturgical rites, different liturgical expressions. Um, the individual rites were communities of the faithful who may or may not have their own hierarchy and who were received into communion with Rome. Rite was understood as a descriptor for a particular church. Um, and this was a position present even in the, uh, we, you may know we have a 1990 code of canons of Eastern churches, but there were earlier canons issued um, in the period around World War II uh, for Eastern Catholics. And this was the same position presented in that legislation. Uh, the entire system of law as existed before Vatican II was consistent of applying the notion of a church, meaning a right. However, the Second Vatican Council moved away from describing the Eastern churches as rites and instead presented the Catholic church as a communion of churches. These Catholic churches are in the language of Paul VI, likened to the Trinity in that the universal is manifested in the local, but the local cannot be separated from the universal. So we did still use, we do still use that term right, but it describes a liturgical tradition, Byzantine, Antiochian, Armenian, Chaldean, Alexandrian. It doesn't refer to what we would call a church. An equality of the church's rights was explicitly stated in the decree on the Eastern churches, where we read, none of them is superior to the others as regards to right. And this conciliar understanding of right and particular church was reflected when the church revised its canon law after the Second Vatican Council, first in the West in 1983, and then with a code in the East in 1990. Even the issuing of a code for Eastern Catholics is again, another example of the Bishop of Rome um, exercising his universal primacy, right? It's, it's an, the, the Bishop of Rome is functioning um, in a capacity of issuing this document which binds all the Eastern Catholics, right? They're subject to his authority. And so this whole notion of church, you know, when they were drafting the Eastern Code, Father Zuzek, who really was behind um, bringing this all together, they really wanted to be precise with this and to avoid using the term right to talk about a church. And indeed they said, we need to think of a new term that will describe this reality. Um, and they had hoped to use the term particular church, but unfortunately in the Latin code, this was already referring, referring to a diocese. So they had to do, uh, come up with something new and the term church sui juris is what, um, what we got in the end. It was all, we say it was pro bono pacis. It was basically kind of the compromise people could agree on and it is what it is. Um, we should say that there are specific um, elements about a, a church sui juris. Um, and that would 
you know, a, basically, and we read in canon law that a church suiuris is a community of the faithful joined together by a hierarchy according to the norm of law and expressly or tacitly recognized as suiuris by the authority of the church. So there's four points to this understanding. It's a community of the faithful. Um, it's something that is it's a group of Christians, a defined group of individuals joined together by baptism and ascription, membership in an individual church. The faithful are ascribed to a church suiuris according to the norm of law at the time of baptism. Second, this community is joined together by a hierarchy. And this hierarchy itself, the bishops have juridical bonds based on their shared membership in a church suiuris. Now this could, for the patriarchal and major archiepiscopal churches, include membership in a synod of bishops, or for metropolitan churches, it could be membership in a council of hierarchs, a way for the bishops to come together and govern their church as a whole. The hierarchy has governing authority over the church suiuris and has proper jurisdiction over its subjects. However, that hierarchy has to function according to the norm of law, which is the third element of that definition. We follow the norm of law. The patriarch has defined functions in canon law that govern the church suiuris, such as he functions as the juridic representative of the church. The patriarchal synod also has things it can and cannot do in canon law in leading the church with, just like in the US government, legislative, executive, and judicial power of governance. So when we talk about a, a full, the church having the fullness of you know, self-governing power, you know, so the patriarchal churches, for example, it has executive, legislative, and judicial powers of governance. And when we go down into those other types of churches, Suiris, some of them don't have all of those um, powers intrinsic to their structures. The self-governing status of, of sui juris churches is not an absolute reality. They're not autocephalous orthodox churches. We have to distinguish a self-governing church in the Catholic communion between the idea of an autocephalous church in the orthodox communion, the Eastern Orthodox communion. The Bishop of Rome is not, in the Catholic understanding, the primus intuparis. The Bishop of Rome possesses power of governance over Eastern Catholic churches despite their self-governing status. And so they always remain subject to the supreme authority of the church. That's that norm of law that we hear about. The authority defines itself um, with this norm of law and that it applies to the individual churches through years. Um, and there are, for example, the territorial limitation of the patriarch's power, which we'll look at in a little bit. Finally, a church, a community has to be recognized as suiuris by the church's supreme authority. This could be explicit, you know, the Bishop of Rome could say, you know, and that did happen a few years ago when the Eritrean church was recognized as a separate church from the Ethiopian church. Um, or maybe the Bishop of Rome will um, raise a certain church, this happened in Slovakia also a few years ago, to the status of a metropolitan church suiuris, bringing them all together. It could be tacit to maybe historical, um, and even defining its structure and how it operates. Talked about the decree of the Eastern churches that we all have that equal heritage. Um, it's important to mention what, what makes a church suiris different from each other. And there's a fourfold uniqueness of patrimony to these churches. And that's a spiritual patrimony, 
a disciplinary patrimony, we call, might call that a canonical patrimony, a theological patrimony, and a liturgical patrimony. So for example, Father Andrew, who spoke so graciously introduced me, is um, a Ruthenian Catholic priest, a Byzantine Catholic priest in the United States. You know, we belong to the same uh, liturgical family and indeed the Ukrainians and the Ruthenians even follow the same, what we call the Editio Typica books published by the Holy See. We have the same usage of the liturgy, but we do belong to different churches sui juris. We have um, unique spiritual histories to each of our churches. We have different canonical histories. Our churches developed differently. We have unique theological emphases. Um, you know, for Ukrainian Catholics, the special place of the, the Monastery of the Caves and the entire uh, cave and theological tradition is something very unique to that church. And our liturgical tradition even does have some nuances between us. And so sometimes we might, um, when we refer to a liturgical rite, we, we wouldn't even necessarily we refer to the Byzantine tradition, but if we're referring to a rite in the canonical sense, we'd often say the, you know, the Byzantine Ukrainian rite or the Byzantine Melkite rite or the Byzantine Ruthenian rite to really identify the specific use that is happening. And so we have this notion of these churches existing, um, obviously in their homelands, um, but then you know, as Father Andrew mentioned at the beginning, you know, history has happened, right? Uh, that notion of the traditional territory um, has been expanded. And so uh, if we look at the code of canons of the Eastern churches, we have this idea that um, the territory of the church over which the patriarch presides is extended to those regions in which the right proper to the same church is observed. So we have this kind of obscure reference that there is a notion of a traditional territory to a church. Um, it's not defined in law, and indeed for different churches, um, it makes different levels of sense almost, you know. Uh, you know, for example, I'll give a great example. Um, you know, my grandparents came from, you know, the, a part of uh, the Austro-Hungarian Empire that was, you know, traditionally Ukrainian, but now is inside Poland. Um, you know, Ukrainians have lived there for, you know, centuries, um, but it's not in the political reality of today's Ukraine. Um, so, you know, despite the fact you could walk there from the Ukrainian border, um, it's not part of the canonical territory of the Ukrainian Catholic Church. But then a different part of Ukraine, say for example, Crimea, where there really haven't ever been Eastern Catholics, are part of that canonical territory. So just to say that there is a territory defined in law and that territory may have been defined a long time ago. For example, you may or may not know, but the Patriarch of Antioch, the Melkite Patriarch of, of Antioch also has rights in Jerusalem and also has rights in Alexandria. And that really uh, comes from the Ottoman experience, experience in the Ottoman Empire when the Holy See gave him jurisdiction throughout the Ottoman territories. You know, there's a, there's a history there um, that has established that acquired right of giving him powers in a certain, uh, in a certain territory. And why does this even matter? Because bishops who are in the patriarchal territory have uh, uh, many more rights as to what they can do without involving the Bishop of Rome. Um, for example, inside the patriarchal territory, a synod of bishops has numerous privileges. 
the patriarch can approve liturgical texts and they reform. He can promulgate them as binding on his patriarchal church, even outside the patriarchal territory. He can, with the consent of his synod, erect Stavropigial monasteries. He can erect or approve religious congregations, orders of patriarchal law. Uh, he can exempt religious from the power of the eparchial bishop, so-called Stavropigial organizations. He can suppress juridic persons other than those erected with approval of the Roman See. He has the rights and obligations of an eparchial bishop, um, even in places that have a local bishop, if it's Stavropigial. The patriarch can receive into the Catholic Church bishops of other churches with the consent of the Synod of Bishops. This is a big deal because if you receive a bishop, they become a member of what we call the College of Bishops, right? They are part of that body that is the highest governing body in the Catholic Church. And a patriarch in his territory can receive that individual and bring him into the College of Bishops. The patriarch can issue instructions, send encyclical letters. He can establish statutes for different uh, liturgical groups. Um, he can perform canonical visitations. He can exercise vigilance over clerics. He has to be commemorated liturgically by them. Um, he can, in terms of penalties in the church, he can reserve to himself remission of certain offenses. He can dispense from impediments to sacred orders for ordination. He can grant the loss of the clerical state to priests in certain special cases. He can bless the marriage of members of his church anywhere on earth. He can dispense from canonical form. He can grant exclaustrations. He can allow monks and religious subject to him to leave the monastery. Uh, all of this is possible in the patriarchal territory. And the synod itself um, has judicial power even where the tribunal can try bishops or metropolitans in non-criminal cases. Uh, they have the highest authority for their church in that territory. That's not the case outside the patriarchal territory. And this reflects the idea that there's a, when we talk about a church surreus, there's a personal factor of membership. Is one a member of an Eastern Catholic Church? So I am personally a member of the Ukrainian Catholic Church. I am juridically ascribed to the Ukrainian Catholic Church. But then there's a territorial factor regarding jurisdiction that relates to the canonical territory. Do I live in the canonical territory? And if I do, then the patriarch, mid-archbishop, or the metropolitan, and the metropolitan church, Suiris, has certain rights and privileges over me, and even has rights and privileges over all Catholics in that territories who lack a proper hierarchy. So, you know, I don't know if Chaldeans start moving into Kiev, you know, if they don't have a bishop, the major archbishop of Kiev, his Beatitude has a jurisdiction over, over them and has to provide for their spiritual needs. Um, that's not the case when we're outside the, the, the traditional territory. Um, that territory is obscurely defined, as I mentioned, the region in which the rite is observed. There's no definition to the period of time that the rite has to be observed in that territory. And that's really a change from the earlier law. In the earlier law, we would refer to territories where right was observed, quote, from ancient times, you know? So you really had to establish this was your territory. Um, whereas now there's more flexibility. And we've seen some example of this um, in the modern era, uh, just two years ago, um, when the, the Bishop of Rome extended the patriarchal territory of Eastern Catholics in India to include um, 
India beyond the Kerala region. So you may know that the, in the Kerala region, which is the southwest part of India, there are huge numbers of Eastern Catholics. Um, but if they left that territory, they had to subject themselves um, to the authority of the local Latin bishop, uh, in even in some cases were required to transfer rights to become uh, Latin Catholics. So there was even a time for the Cyril Malankar church where they didn't have a proper hierarchy. They were all subjected to a Latin primate um, that was appointed in conjunction um, with the, uh, the Portuguese, um, the Portuguese government, basically there was a historical um, influence there of the Portuguese that determined who was able to be there, the head of their church. Um, if we are not part of the patriarchal territory though, so for many of us here who live in the West, well, what does our synod of bishops or our patriarch or our major archbishop actually, what authority do they have over us? And we read that here in Canon 150, paragraph two. Laws enacted by the synod of bishops of the patriarchal church and promulgated by the patriarch, if they are liturgical, have the force of law everywhere in the world. If, however, they are disciplinary laws or concern other decisions of the synod, they have the force of law you know, only inside the territorial you know, boundaries of the patriarchal church. You know, we only have this uh, ability to uh, legislate in the territory, strictly speaking. So I'm an Eastern Catholic. I live in Canada. You know, what I have to do in the rubrics of the liturgy, because the liturgy is seen as a common patrimony to all the churches, uh, all, to the church, properly speaking, um, that, is, that is governed by his beatitude. Um, but, you know, my certain other obligations, you know, maybe fasting, for example, certainly there's a tradition I should follow that. I mean, even I'm morally obligated to follow that, but am I canonically obligated to follow that? You know, you certainly would find commentators who would say, no, no, you're not. And indeed, the Eastern Code even gives you uh, the allowance of accommodating yourself to the, the fasting present in the territory in which you reside. So you know, I mentioned the, these examples already, the Ukrainians, the Melkites, the Syrian Malabars who've had their territory expanded and the Ruthenians who have their territory, um, interestingly, you know, really only in the so-called diaspora, that is their proper canonical territory uh, and not in their historical territory. So what is, you know, what about the West, right? And all of this comes down to the idea that we are, probably many would disagree, uh, but you know, juridically speaking, we are here as, uh, as guests almost of the Roman pontiff. Now we might say, hey, we've been here for a century, right? We've been here for centuries, it's ridiculous. Um, but you know, that's the structure that we have in the church as it stands. Um, if we're outside of that particular territory, our bishop does have some abilities to, um, to expand those laws. And that can happen in one of two ways. One is that the Bishop of Rome can approve them. It could be a, what we call a special, a special law, which could apply to the whole church, but that becomes an act of the Bishop of Rome then, right? It's not an act of the synod. The synod's power is still circumscribed by law. Um, or we could have the local Bishop um, could say, hey, you know, all these things about disciplinary uh, topics, I'm going to put them in, in law in my eparchy as much as possible, uh, and I'm going to promulgate that. And then it becomes binding on his subjects, at least to the limits of his competence. So one of those things have to happen, um, because otherwise, we're almost afloat here, right? You know, we have this connection to a mother church, um, but 
it's not as strong as sometimes it might be in our mind, right? You know, the patriarch has certain rights here. He might be able to come and install our bishops. Uh, he comes for a visitation every six years. We commemorate him at the liturgy. Um, but in a sense, I mean, it might sound provocative, but in a sense, it's almost titular, right? It's almost a titular headship um, where we have this awkward situation where the church says we're ascribed to this um, membership in this church. You know, Father Joseph would say, even in the womb, you're, in the womb, you're ascribed to your church through years. You're formed in your church in the womb. Um, but then you're, you know, in this kind of awkward are you in or are you not states, you know, when we are in the so-called diaspora? And this really impacts the mission to evangelize, for better or worse, of course. Um, when we talk about uh, the mission to evangelize, obviously, we're talking about the divine task given to us in the Gospel of Matthew from our Lord Jesus Christ himself, right? Um, the 11 disciples go to Galilee, the mountain to which Jesus directed them. They saw him, they worshipped him. Um, some doubted, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you to the close of the age. Um, we even say in the creed, right, at every liturgy, I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Uh, and Catholic, you know, we, we refer to the completeness of the church, the rich variety of its components, but its openness to all of humanity, its extension throughout the world as one church consisting of many particular churches that are in communion with each other. If we read the Second Vatican Council's decrees, we have the decree on uh, agentis, the decree on evangelization, that the pilgrim church is missionary by her nature. It is from the mission of the Son and the mission of the Holy Spirit she draws her origin. Missionary activity comes, you know, it comes from God's command to us. And God has told us to do this. Um, we are told to go forth and do this. And there was a time in history where we were not allowed to do this, okay? As Eastern Catholics, we were not allowed to do this. But the Second Vatican Council is very clear in its decree on the Eastern churches um, that we are able to do this, and we can read here that we are of equal dignity, that none of them is superior to the others as regards right, and they enjoy the same rights and under, under the same obligations, also in respect of preaching the gospel to the whole world, under the guidance of the Roman pontiff. Now we might not appreciate today how radical of a statement that would have been. You know, missionaries who would have had to, in many cases, transfer to the Latin church if they wanted to go, you know, and, and be missionaries, if you want to go preach the gospel, um, we, you know, to the uh, to the to the, the heathens, I mean, what if you want to call that's the unbaptized, um, you know, we, we'd have to join the Latin church often abandon our liturgical tradition that it, our, our church surreurus that has formed who we are, we have to leave that behind uh, and to go to do this task. And Second Vatican Council says, no, you're, you can do this yourself. Indeed, you have the obligations to do this yourself. And maybe how we live that out as Eastern Catholic churches is a better topic for uh, conversations. But just to say that the church's surreurus have obligations to send um, missionaries out according to the norm of law to preach the, throughout the whole world. Now, the Roman pontiff has an obligation as, you know, the, primer, the, the um, supreme judge to, to figure out, well, how is this going to all work, right? But, but we all have an obligation to participate in this task. 
And I think we have some very positive examples of this. And so I wanted to you know, give you a great positive example of this that we have here in Canada, um, which I think is a great example of what, what Eastern Catholics could be doing. So you might've heard of this before, you might not. So a 30 second history of the Catholic Church, the Ukrainian Catholic Church in Canada is that the, um, at the beginning, we didn't have a proper hierarchy. And um, we saw that the, uh, well, we didn't, but people saw that the, um, there were huge conversions to orthodoxy happening. Um, and so many French, especially French um, religious re uh, redemptorists, uh, Oblates and Mary Immaculate began to try and learn the Eastern tradition so that they could minister to these Catholic people. And that led to the establishment of the Yorkton province of the Redemptorists, where we actually had a Ukrainian province, a Byzantine province of Redemptorists in Canada. And so they have this mission called the Welcome Home, which I think is a great example for us as Eastern Catholics, um, where they minister to inner city people um, with Bible studies, with young adult groups, with food. You know, they, they have... Um, you know, like a food bank, a sacramental preparation. Um, they celebrate the sacraments of initiation. They have family night on Thursday, which is preceded by Vespers always. Uh, and they've, you know, celebrated the sacraments of initiation for 47 people there who, you know, none of them are traditionally Eastern. Um, in fact, almost all of them would be native Canadian. Um, you know, they're, they're ministering to people who live in that community and offering something to the world. I kind of chuckled when we were talking about this whole question of viri probati recently, when they're saying, well, you know, in the Amazon, celibacy is kind of a, an impediment. And I thought, gosh, if only we had churches in the Catholic communion that had married clergy, you know, we could just maybe try and identify this task, you know, if only they existed, um, you know, that we could make that that possible. And when we, uh, we also have negative examples, though, I think, and I'm, I, I'm not, don't want to get into them to focus on that, but just to say we've all probably had experiences of Eastern Catholics where we don't appreciate that missionary imperative that exists in our church, that our Lord has told us to go forth and do this, and, and we, we don't, we avoid it. Um, we uh, go inwards, we focus maybe on our ethnic group, maybe even on a smaller subculture um, it, within that ethnic group. I know sometimes, you know, we have one region and another region and we form different parishes and we, we don't even go beyond that. Um, but to say that there, are, we can think of a lot of negative examples that don't reflect the obligation, uh, the divine mandate for the Eastern Catholic churches to engage in this. Um, and how can missionary activity be coordinated? I think there are a lot of great examples for ways that we can do this. Um, certainly on a small scale, something like the Welcome Home or our own individual parishes. But even we have, uh, we have more uh, structural ability to engage in missionary work. And so examples of this would be pontifical missionary societies or church extension societies. In Canada, we have something called Catholic Missions in Canada, which has as part of its structure, the obligation, and I would say maybe privilege, of supporting the Ukrainian Catholic Church specifically to ensure that it has what it needs to do its, um, to survive basically in Canada. The National Conference of Catholic Bishops in the United States and Canada, wherever, has a coordinating activity because all of this direction should be going against the bishop, uh, going under the direction of the bishops. Um, but I would say that maybe that's not always the best structure. We have in law something called an assembly of hierarchs of several churches, Suriuris, um, in the Eastern Cold, which is exists in the Middle East all over the place, but we don't have them in Canada. Because the conference of or in the United States, the conference of bishops is really a Latin conference. It's meant 
to deal with the competencies given it in law. Um, and our Eastern bishops, it's great they participate. Actually, it's really good. You know, they have relationships, they get business done. Um, but it's a Latin conference, whereas there's this other structure called the Assembly of Hierarchs of Several Churches Suriuris, which is meant to look at those topics that are common to all of the churches. You know, so maybe something to do with the government, right? That would be common to all the Eastern churches. Um, questions of evangelization. Hey, we have these territories that need help. Who's got priests available? Who's willing to do this? Maybe, um, you know, there's lore that, you know, sometimes uh, for some native peoples that, um, the Eastern traditions can be a little more in line with their ancestral religious traditions. And there's an openness there that, that isn't always present. So, you know, we could coordinate all of this through that assembly of hierarchs that could have this guidance, some sense of the time. But um, maybe to say that all of this is meant to um, proclaim the gospel, right? We are all in this on the same team, even though we're on different teams sometimes. Uh, to proclaim the gospel throughout the world. Um, we have these traditions that emerged in the East from the earliest times. The decree on ecumenism talks about that, number 16, Litatis Redi Integratio. We have these unique traditions that emerge in the Christian East, but those are not an obstacle to the church's unity. A diversity of customs and observances adds to the splendor of the church, and it's helpful in carrying out the mission because in our world today, we can see how how young people and not so young people are looking for the divine, right? They are not finding it where they are. And they're looking, sometimes finding all kinds of crazy stuff. Um, but I think that there's a calling for us to say, what can we as Eastern Christians offer to the world? How can we be faithful to our tradition in a way that opens it to the world uh, and, and offers a really great witness to a world um, that is all at the service of the preaching of the gospel? Um, just to mention that if you're, you know, again, I told you that there's, we're really kind of flying through things in this 35 minutes um, to 40 minutes. Uh, but if you're interested in these topics, you know, if you're interested in the Eastern churches in general, um, there's a great book by Father Robinson, The Eastern Christian Churches, a brief survey that's actually available online also. You can read it for free or the decree on the Eastern Catholic churches on the Vatican website. Um, there's a couple of books here that are more in depth. Uh, you know, this one by Sean Doyle, uh, which I have right here, um, Canonica 29 is like, I say it reads like a novel, you know, if you're into Ken Law, maybe at least, but the Apostolic See in the Eastern Catholic Churches from the Tridentine era to the present, which is a new publication, Canonica 29, Sean Doyle's a canonist in Philadelphia, young guy, younger than me. Um, and he uh, wrote this really great work looking at what is the authority of the Bishop of Rome over the Eastern Catholic Churches? How is that circumscribed over history? Really great work I'd recommend. Uh, and at that point, I'm opening up two questions. Maybe I'll stop sharing. Should I stop staring, Andrew? Yes, you can stop sharing, yeah. I mean, share your wisdom. <laughs> Green. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Father uh, Alexander. It's just a real great uh, tour de force, as it were, uh, through a uh, variety of issues that uh, we face as Eastern Catholics in all parts of the world. Um, just uh, thank you for maybe to just get a start started. Uh, maybe start where you left off, maybe talking about territory. Mm -hmm. Sean Fredristi asks, 
Can you maybe explain a little bit more the official understanding about the New World territories as being a Latin territory? In many ways, the Americas are, are not the traditional location of the Latin church. So would that mean that Eastern churches are equal occupant? I mean, maybe just to explain that reality of how that came to be. Yeah, so there's different factors that are in play here. I mean, maybe a more politically correct one would just be the universal jurisdiction of the Roman pontiff, right? They kind of, he gets everywhere. Um, some of this would relate to what we would call the doctrine of discovery, which is, uh, you know, in Canada, we're really trying to deal with this topic of colonialism. And uh, we have a thing called truth and reconciliation. Um, you know, how does all of this play out? And the, sort of the doctrine of discovery is, you know, what we got here, right? So it's ours. Um, but we know, of course, that there are parts of the United States, especially where Eastern Christian missionaries would have been present first, right? They would have been uh, present, especially in Alaska, but that doesn't seem to make it into the canonical territory um, of, of those churches. So to say a little bit about um, this idea that in the West, the so-called notion of the West, um, there is a, a, a traditional understanding that maybe we, we would want to challenge sometimes um, that we belong to the jurisdiction of the, the Church of Rome. Um, this it plays out in orthodoxy in different ways too, of course, right? You know, they're not united on an understanding of this too. Some would say that all of this is under the jurisdiction of the Patriarch of Constantinople. Some um, would disagree with that. And that's why we have overlapping hierarchies on the orthodox side too. But I, I guess, it, I mean, I don't mean it to be a cop-out answer, but just to say that it's, it's a complex topic where uh, I think that there needs to be a discussion had there, um, especially when we look at the changing demographics in the sense that, um, you know, there are many Eastern Christian churches who are present in greater numbers in the so-called West or the so-called diaspora than they are in their homeland, right? Uh, the Chaldeans, I think, would be a great, or even more, more particularly the Assyrian Church of the East, who definitely are, are in greater numbers in the United States than they are um, in Iraq. And that's a real challenge for these traditional understandings of what is patriarchal territory, what is our traditional territory, and what are the limits of our bishop, right? You know, that's great, you've got 10 people there in, in Baghdad, but um, we have more than 10, but, uh, you know, if, if all of his faithful are present in, in the United States, the church is a living reality, right? The church history changes, the church changes, it always has changed, and so we shouldn't get in a static period, I think. I'm not sure if that's at the service of the gospel, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Uh, just uh, maybe a kind of a general question, how much, if any, did colonialism play in the creation of the acquisition of these Eastern churches? Jerome Chandler asks. Um, so in, in the creation of these churches, so, you know, um, definitely, we, okay, we have to admit that the, uh, each individual Eastern Catholic church has its own history, right? It has its own history that is particular to it. Um, but they are definitely influenced by the political reality in which they emerged. Um, and so colonialism will be, in some cases, an important factor when, um, you know, a certain ecclesial affiliation that would bring one closer to the Bishop of Rome may have certain political benefits um, that would be, a, you know, kind of extended or related to the fact of one's being a colony of a certain, uh, a certain church. And even, um, I think, colonialism and that whole colonial That'd be a really good doctor if someone actually is very Cajun maybe, but um, it'd be a really good topic to look at the experience of Eastern Catholics as a colonial experience, you know, because um, we're in this kind of post-colonial world, at least we're trying to move into that post-colonial or 
maybe not trying, but we're in this post-colonial world. Um, and, and, you know, how has our experience been? I, you know, I, I hear people refer to the Eastern congregation who are eminently professional people trying their best to help us. I mean, I know Father Andrew, you know many people there, but they often call it the colonial office, right? You know, it's this kind of idea that, well, you know, it's like the British and they tell us what we can and can't do. And um, and, and I don't know if that's that's helpful, but that's, that's the experience of the Eastern Catholic churches. I think colonialism is a very strong factor there, whether at its origin for some of them, or as the lived reality today. Maybe you could speak a little bit about some of the, the casualties of colonialism in the United States, particularly with regard to priestly celibacy. Yeah, so in the United States especially, um, but in Canada as well, um, you know, there was originally this notion, well, they're here in the West now, so they should just kind of become like we are, you know? Um, so that would, uh, at first, deny them their own proper ministers. Um, eventually, they said, well, I guess we got to give them someone because they're not going to, uh, they're going to become Orthodox otherwise. So, you know, get them a priest, but not, not a married priest, right? And of course, that's a bit of a challenge when um, in many of these churches, you know, celibate priests are in a minority. And obviously, not all of them wanted to get on a boat and go across the ocean to uh, Pittsburgh or Akron or wherever they might find themselves. Um, you know, they were happy where they were, of course, um, and, and didn't see a need for this. And this led to um, various schisms, I guess is the best way to put it, especially in the United States. Um, so, for example, the Orthodox Church of America under um, who someone venerated, St. Alexis Toth, um, you know, who brought huge numbers into canonical orthodoxy um, in Canada, too. This was a big issue. And in Canada, that's how... Um, Blessed Nikita Budka, our first bishop in Canada, who died a martyr's death in Kazakhstan, um, the way he was appointed was it was the, the, the hemorrhaging of faithful to orthodoxy that eventually led the French hierarchy to say, um, listen, we got to give them their own bishop because this isn't working. Yeah. Especially at a time where, you know, becoming orthodox, you know, for, for many of those Catholic bishops would have meant, you know, you're kind of damnation you know or, or whatever yeah. right especially in the 1910s and 1920s that would have been the understanding yeah, yeah. and uh, uh father uh john custer asks if perhaps would evangelization in this american diaspora uh if we think that's an adequate term uh be better served by a single byzantine jurisdiction that respected the needs and preferences of ukrainians ruthenians romanians or melkites where concentrations exist, but avoiding multiplying new parishes outside of traditional areas of immigrant settlement. The, the idea of an ABC church, an American Byzantine Catholic church, or a, yeah. That's a, you know, a really great question. And I have to say that, um, you know, my thoughts would be that from the earliest traditions of the church, we have a firm model one city, one bishop. That's clear in the church, right? Until um, really kind of the period of the Crusades. There are some um, interactions uh, with Armenian Catholics at certain periods, um, but it's really the period of the Crusades where overlapping hierarchies tend to emerge. Um, and that's not the model of the early church. You know, we know John Chrysostom had Latin parishes. He was dealing with that was some of the conflict, of course, would be, well, the Romans closed the Greek parish or the Greeks closed the Latin parish, you know, that was, but there was one bishop for those parishes. And there was um, a juridical uh, consistency there, you know, a clear 
a clear structure, a clear mission. And I mean, I don't know if, if one hierarchy is the answer to that, how that works, but we can see that that's the model of the early church, certainly. And there was a wisdom to that model. Um, beyond that, you know, the Holy See, I think, shows our Eastern Catholic Church's um, great esteem in um, establishing hierarchies throughout the West, you know. Um, and, you know, I'm a, I'm a canonist, so I to, I'm always the practical guy. Well, you know, who's going to pay for all this or questions like that? Or, or you know, who's going who's gonna to help these bishops? You know, I help many bishops who, who have no clue what, what they're doing, right? Um, and, I mean, from a corporate kind of, I mean, not the church isn't a corporation. It's absolutely not a corporation. It's much more than that. But, like, you know, these bishops have to get this done. They have to form their priests. They have to pay for their chance, we have to incorporate, have lawyers, all these things that they don't know how to do that. They don't, many of them have no clue how to do that. And how can we make that possible? And that's why I think one hierarchy would address a lot of these or fewer hierarchies. So for example, in Canada, in Toronto at least, our Eastern Catholic, our Ukrainian Catholic eparchy did include Slovaks. They now have their own hierarchy. Uh, it still includes Hungarian Greek Catholics and it did have Romanian Greek Catholics until they had their uh, were united with the eparchy in Canton, Ohio. So there was a grouping together to at least be like, hey, you're all Byzantines, um, you're from different traditions, but here in Canada, maybe we can all pool our resources and try our best to do that. Yeah, uh, uh, very good. Uh, just a question about competing canonical territories, right? Uh, particularly uh, since uh, you are a Ukrainian Catholic priest, uh, Father Hikori Lozinski asks, what do you think about the status of the Church of the Eparchy of Mukachevo? So for those of you that don't know insider baseball, the Eparchy of Mukachevo is the historical origin of the Ruthenian Church, which due to casualties of history now falls within the territories of modern day Ukraine. They have... Uh, a status of sui iuris, and the Ukrainian Catholic Church have a sui iuris status. Um, they're directly under the Congregation for Eastern Churches, and it's it's one of the largest Eastern eparchies uh, in the Catholic Communion, over three hundred thousand faithful. So, uh, yeah, what do you make of that? So, I mean, obviously we're dealing with communities that have unique histories in this case, right? So the borders, uh, the political borders have not corresponded to the historical reality of the populations in those areas. Um, and so um, at least portions of the Epic of Mokachevo would feel much more in common, you know, with the Slovaks or um, maybe even with the, the Hungarian churches in that region than say with the Ukrainians. And that whole Ruthenian question is a big, big topic that we don't really have time to get into. Um, but to say that there is a unique tradition there, um, but then you have this awkward situation, exactly as you've pointed out, where we have a very large eparchy who now is removed from any real ecclesial structure, right? Any synodal structure because of the, the boundaries it's found itself in, right? Um, and Pope Francis, when the war in Ukraine broke out, I'll maybe duck uh, as I say this from, I'm sure there's many Ukrainian Catholics on here, but he chastised the Ukrainian Catholic bishops who were with him in Rome at the time, the permanent synod, um, for not having any common meetings between the three hierarchies that exist in Ukraine. So the Latin hierarchy, the Ukrainian Catholic hierarchy, and then the Eparchy of Mukachevo. He chastised them, listen, your country's at war and you guys don't get together at all, right? Because there's a value, again, that back to those 
assemblies of hierarchs of several churches through Eurus. So there's a value to bishops working together and coordinating their ministry with each other, right? And not competing with each other. And I think that's the problem is when we start to compete with each other and definitely, and unfortunately, Makachi was an example, but in other places in the West too, um, that you know we, we often compete with each other. Yeah, very good, yeah. Um, Nathaniel Tinner asked this question. The challenges mentioned concerning vocations in the episcopacy seem similar in origin to the experience of black Catholics in the United States. Long early periods of suppression and abuse in the diaspora. What would you say is a viable way forward on that front for groups like this, both black Catholics and our own, uh, but also within the Roman Rite? How might self-oversight and priestly vocations be recovered? Yeah, so I think really, you know, the whole concept of priestly formation is a big topic, obviously, but, uh, you know, we, we need to form priests in our tradition, right? And that's easier said than done. Um, so the Ruthenians in the States, for example, you have your own seminary, which is great, but, um, you know, many, many of our Eastern Catholic churches um, are not able to foster that culture of vocations. They're not able to, sometimes for reasons of distance, sometimes they have to go to a Latin seminary where they find themselves, you know, they don't have their own um, proper seminary where they can um, get that education. Or maybe sometimes importing seems like a, a cheaper um, a cheaper solution, unfortunately, or, you know, you can send them back if it doesn't work out. But I think you need to have a culture of vocations present in in a territory that that nurtures itself, right? You know, I'm kind of part of the last lost generation. I mean, I don't I don't know what the numbers were like, but you know, my grandparents came as part of a huge uh, displaced movement into Toronto. Like there was a huge movement of people from uh, you from what it was then Poland um, after the Second World War. Um, but if I look around in my parishes, you know, how many of my generation are present? There are very few. I mean, I'm not just saying clergy. I'm saying there's yeah. in the pews, period, very few, right? And we've we've kind of um, moved away from that. And that's the challenge of secularization is a big, a big topic. But I think kind of uh, promoting vocations, promoting domestic vocations, nurturing them and training them uh, in the ministry that they're going to serve, right? Because that's another thing that we could, well, I mean, it's great to go to Ukraine to learn Ukrainian, but uh, you know, reality of parish ministry in Ukraine is very different from parish ministry in Canada or in Italy or in South America, right? Um, and uh, we shouldn't see that as a solution either, right? Because that can cause all, all kinds of different problems. Yeah, you talk about uh, sort of local uh, culture. Um, there are kind of two related questions. We have one from Monk Maximus writing from Puerto Rico, uh, another from Levi Makarios writing in Indonesia. And Monk uh, Maximus asked, what what would be the mission call of Eastern Catholics in Latin America? You know, for example, we have many Latin Catholics there, Eastern and interested in Eastern Christianity, not attached to any given church. Uh, and kind of following that, Levi Makarios asks, you know, how do you interact with your local culture? There's no Eastern Catholic Church yet in Indonesia, uh, but uh, there's quite a rich culture there uh, to work with. So, so. The church presents a culture, has to engage with culture. Uh, how do we do that on a practical missionary level? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, so uh, I'm a big fan of Southeast Asia. You know, I uh, was really lucky to celebrate the Divine Liturgy in Singapore uh, in December, um, in December when I was there. And, 
you know, there's an interest for the Eastern churches. And some of that's like almost like an esoteric thing, right? You know, that this is different or this is kind of cool or it's more authentic. Um, so there's that, which is good, right? You know, it, it brings people to church, so we, we shouldn't denigrate that. Um, but I would say that, that, again, people are searching for a, an experience of the living Christ. And for many people, they find that um, in the liturgical tradition of the Christian East as it's lived out. Um, I can think of many parishes uh, throughout North America, um, and I don't see why that wouldn't apply in other territories that, you know, have had a very vibrant expression of the Liturgy of the Hours, especially, that has attracted many young people who are not from that historical group, but they found something of meaning there, something of uh, encounter there. Um, and, and I think that's a great value that Eastern churches bring to the world. You know, it's not going to be for everyone. Uh, I think we can agree, you know, the, the Ukrainian Catholic Church in Brazil is not going to become the dominant religion, but I think it, could, it brings something to the table. And I think it um, offers uh, an, an encounter with the risen Christ that people really uh, are searching for. And if it's a welcoming community, you know, that, that preaches the gospel, you know, people will come. Uh Bishop David Motuk, uh, of yeah, the here, yeah. Yeah, yeah. The, the, your fellow canonist there, uh, thanks you for a fine presentation. Uh, thinking about it, uh, next year, there is an important document, the 25th anniversary of the Eastern Code, uh, the 25th anniversary of the instruction on how to apply liturgical norms yeah. in the Eastern Code. Uh, I myself am a part of our Metropolitan Liturgical uh, Commission. Uh, the Oriental Congregation asked us to fill out an enormous questionnaire uh, detailing what we think about how that's going. Uh, how do you think that's happening? Is that happening well in Canada and the United States? Has it been successful in responding to Eastern liturgical renewal? The, the instruction itself? Yeah. Um, okay, so I mean, Canada's a big country in the case of Canada. Um, I would say in general though, uh, the liturgical renewal that has happened has almost happened independent of that document, I would think. I mean, if I asked the seminarians who, that I teach who knows what it is, I don't know how many hands I'd get, um, I mean, frankly, or if they, if they knew what it was, how many have read it. Um, I, I think that the good that the document is calling for is already reflected in a desire, especially of young clergy, to reclaim their ancestral traditions and to live that fully. Um, they're choosing to come to this church, they're choosing to drive past 10 Latin parishes to come to our parish, maybe 20 or 30 even, um, and they want that authentic experience as a result, right? Um, so I think that that's the context of liturgical renewal has been ha happening, uh, with which the, the renewal has been happening. And I, I mean, I find that those kind of documents are great resources for us who work in chanceries, whether bishops or, or liturgical commissions or whoever, uh, and, and point towards principles we can apply. Um, but I, I mean, I could think of the kind of, I don't wanna say best liturgical parishes, the kind of the high Byzantines that maybe in, in Ontario, I would expect that all of those pastors have, maybe except one, have not read that document, right? So, and it's just more of a cultural expression of of uh, Byzantinization. Um, and this is a bigger question for some parishes that are, are sorry, some communities who are more Latinized maybe than, than the, the Ukrainians or the Byzantines in general are, who are really trying to reclaim their ancestral heritage. And I know are having difficult resistance from their faithful on that topic. I'm thinking of the Maronites, for example, in some places. Yeah. But uh, very fine. 
Well, that um, brings us to the end of what's been a really exciting, fantastic conversation. Thank you, Father Alex. Um, uh, and thank you, Father Andrew. I think that uh, everyone here walked away um, having certainly learned something about the Eastern churches um, and, and really probably a lot more than we anticipated um, and, and sort of breaking open our minds in terms of um, what it means to have uh, missionary um, Eastern churches, um, Eastern churches in a diaspora era. I want to invite you to tune in next week. We're going to have another fantastic uh, presentation, um, this time by uh, UChicago professor Aaron Walsh, who is going to be talking about um, what happens um, to our understanding of early Christian history when we break open the archive of Syriac literature. Um, if you are unfamiliar with it, there's a great um, trove of texts following Greek and Latin texts. The, the language of the early Christian um, church was actually Syriac. And so she, she's an expert from the University of Chicago. Uh, feel free uh, to tune in next week, same time, same place. Um, I'm grateful to our many co-sponsors who have helped support this, helped make this series possible, helped make it a success. And I invite you to also help make this series a success um, if you enjoyed today's event, uh, you can share the video um, with friends, uh, with people who you think should know more about the Eastern churches. Um, and I'd also invite you to help support our work um, by uh, forwarding on information about next week's lecture to other people, or um, also to become a financial sponsor today. Um, you can donate at www.lumenchristi.org donate. Thank you, and we look forward to welcoming you again next week. <laughs>